0: Hello, listener, and welcome to episode 94 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You're about to hear a conversation between myself and independent journalist Jennifer Block. Jennifer Block writes frequently about health, gender, and conflict of interest in medicine. Jennifer began her journalism career as an intern and then editor at Ms. Magazine. Early in her freelance life, she contributed to The Village Voice, The Nation, and Elle. And in recent years, her work has appeared in The Cut, Newsweek, Long Reads, Romper, and The New York Times. She won several awards for her 2017 cover story in The Washington Post magazine and Reveal podcast, in which she investigated the permanent contraceptive implants Eshore since taken off the market. So Jennifer and I recorded the conversation that I'll play for you in my home in New York City on Friday, December 13th, 2019. We talk in this conversation about Jennifer's second book, Everything Below the Waste, Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution, which was published in July of 2019, and about her first book, Pushed. We talk about my regrets about having a hysterectomy, about the problem with medicine as empowerment, hormonal birth control, abortion, midwifery, alternative healing modalities, health research, feminisms, and why we're talking at all about any of this on a poetry podcast. There's often a variable lag between the recording of the conversations and releasing an episode, but we've never had anything close to this nearly 18-month delay. I'm doing something different, and I've got Jennifer Block right here with me, and I want to explain to both Jennifer and to you, listener, a little bit more about this delay, and then check in with Jennifer about uh, what's changed since we recorded this conversation back in 2019. So first of all, Jennifer, my deepest apologies for how long it's taken to edit and air this episode. And we've communicated a few times um, on email, but as you know, a lot of things have been going on in my life. After we spoke for hours and hours in my apartment— I don't know if you remember, but we went to Ayurveda Cafe across the street, and then we sat and talked for, I think, another three hours, and I turned off my phone, and when I turned it back on, I believe I had over 30 text messages, and it was the beginning of a a pretty serious family crisis that went on uh, for several months, and uh, I won't go into that now. Not long after the pandemic uh, hit, uh, I moved to Maine. You and I talked about my marriage at that at that lunch, but i wasn't yet at the point of separation or divorce and I'm still sort of in the middle of this divorce um, so uh, you know it's a, it's a it's a lot of stuff uh, for me moving back and forth from Maine to new york and Um, One of the things that happened was that every time I tried to listen back to edit our conversation, our conversation begins with a very long explanation on my part or description of of, uh, an argument that I had um, with my then husband, Josh, about your book. and. It was, it was surprisingly upsetting for me to go back and hear myself talking in my sort of pre-divorce um, mindset about this argument between us. I mean, first of all, at this point, when we're talking today in May of 2021, it's been two years since my hysterectomy. Then it was much more recent. Um, but going back and hearing me talk about, um, how upset I was, uh, about the hysterectomy, um, and how upset I was by, about not being able to speak to Josh about that. And, and a sense that this, uh, the differences in the way we saw our bodies and health was a kind of real significant worldview difference. Every time I kept listening to this conversation, I just kept stopping. So, in addition to that, we were going through you know a global health uh, crisis of this pandemic, and part of me was really thinking, what what more context do we need uh, now about doctors? about our relationship to healthcare. Has this changed since COVID? One of the other things that I noticed when I was um, re-listening to our conversation um, was that when we talk about women's health and we talk about women's bodies in our 2019 conversation, we're almost always really talking about cis women's health and cis women's bodies. And it's complicated. It's it, it's complicated to figure out how to talk about gender inclusive women's health. Um, the solution of talking about it as reproductive health is not a full solution. But, you know, making this mistake or failing to be Uh, inclusive in our way of talking about and specific um, is really at odds with the solidarity and care and complexity that I think both of us most want to see in a healthcare revolution. And, And I think that at the heart of what we talk about is a deep need for a much more inclusive understanding of of gender inclusive women's health and um, gender fluidity. So, okay, so those are my uh, apologies. And then I just wanted to hear, how are you? You have survived the pandemic. Uh, has your work survived? Where are we now? What do listeners need to know as they go into this 2019 conversation?
1: I just wanna say it's really good to talk to you again. Um, we're we're on Zoom and I can see you, which is also really nice. Yeah. Um, I I just you know I just want to say wow. I mean we've all been through a year, but you've been through a year, <laughs> and um, I, I just my you know my heart is going out to you. I'm also really grateful to you for saving this conversation from 2019 um, from the the cutting room floor, dustbin, or <laughs> the uh the graveyard of the internet um because uh yes I remember like spending the whole day with you and uh and you know I feel like you're one of those people when I talk to you you know we end up going really deep so I'm I'm glad that it's still alive and it's going to be shared um so first yes I'm I'm okay I've (laughs) I've survived I've had you know I've been really lucky um I've bizarrely had like more work than I could handle this past year. um so you know thankfully that was not a concern for me. you know i I had plenty of work, um plenty of editing work I'll say, so my own work has definitely had to take uh, a step back. Um, you know, I've been able to socialize safely during the year and and provide that for my kid um which I'm also really grateful for. so we've we've been able to stay healthy for the most part but since you shared so personally I'll, I'll share that my my son's father moved out of state um a month into the pandemic mm-hmm. um we had lived a mile apart from each other and had been co-parenting pretty um you know 60 40 if not 50 50. um and that was probably the most devastating thing about this past year definitely for my son um but for my life as well because Um, you know, basically I've been single momming it full time. And during the pandemic, during the early part of the pandemic, it was 24 seven. And yeah, that was, that was hard. Um, My son was pretty sad about his dad. He's seven. Um, Mm. He had just turned seven. Oh, sorry. No, he had just turned six. You know, I'm, I'm editing opinions. And so, and I'm doing a lot of like mentoring. So um, it's good work, but it's not, my work um and so i had to just put my work on the back burner and put my head down and get through each day as all of us were getting through each day and now we have five days of school and i am extremely grateful for that um thank you for raising the issue of inclusive language i i make it a point and and have made it a point i think since the book since the new book to to use women and people interchangeably when appropriate um But yes, I agree, we should have been clear that for the most part our conversation was pertaining to cis women. I remember, I I, I was very clear in the introduction to the book um, that while many of the topics I covered would be applicable to people, to all people with vaginas and or uteruses, um, addressing the issue specific to people who medically transition was beyond the scope of my my work. Um, And I do, I still stand by that. Mm Um, So, you know, I want to say this, the health struggle is real for people who are trans. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish that. At the same time, the reason we have needed to have discussions about cis women's healthcare is because our needs, our physiology has been so routinely ignored and pathologized. Um, I just read a new article about um, an artificial heart, a new artificial heart that, whoops, turns out is too big for women's bodies. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, the company's working on a smaller model, but it took 10 years, I think, to develop this thing. So, um, you know, I can just imagine at that startup, the idea that this might not work in all bodies was was not visible. My work um, ha- has shown, and what I've been basically saying is that we're all being screwed by... <laughs> the modern medical establishment in various ways, and the American insurance system. Um, And those of us who are not cis white men are the most vulnerable. The trans community needs to be just as vigilant about the dangers of over-treatment and bias treatment. And I recognize that's tricky when you're fighting, what you're fighting for is access to treatment. So you you also asked if we're in a new place with these conversations. I have to say, the pandemic, the the discourse um, around safety and risk has, I don't know that I was surprised by it, but I, I think it's reinforced to me how really unprepared um, we are. I think Americans, specifically in, in general, um, to evaluate risk, um, to consider the benefits and harms equally of an intervention. Um, And I think it's, it's reinforced to me how polarized we are, um, you know, that we had to assign political identity to masks and lockdowns and vaccines, um, to the point where we haven't been able to have open, important discussion and debate about what have been hugely impactful policies, like keeping schools closed. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that, that conversation was very much delayed by the politics, to the detriment of of kids and parents and probably mostly moms. Um, And you know, I mean, like many people, I've been really disappointed in in our leadership and not just under Trump. I mean, I'm disappointed in the CDC and Fauci under Biden. Um, The messaging is still, to me, really paternalistic and manipulative rather than straightforward and science-based. Mm. even with the new you know guidelines on masking it's still there's still so much paternalism rather than just telling people um what the science shows what we what we know and what we don't know to date that's science what we know and what we don't know um and it's just been so difficult to have those conversations i've um i've become a soccer coach <laughs> i've gone from nice. i've gone from I just skipped past soccer mom. I'm just now, (laughs) I've somehow ended up coaching a soccer team. And um, we just had a little email conversation with the other coaches about, you know, oh, well, it turns out, you know, outside, there's really no risk of getting COVID. It turns out, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, doesn't it make us look anti-science to keep asking the kids to wear masks? And that was such an interesting conversation to see unfold because, the gist was basically, oh yeah, it looks like outside is safe. But I mean, if we say that the kids can stop wearing masks now, what if parents feel unsafe? What if what if we get pushbacks? Probably better to just keep them wearing masks. And that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> drives me crazy because, you know, I've my entire career since you know when I started working on pushed. I'm interested in what does the science say? What does the evidence say? Why are we not doing, why are our behaviors not aligned with the the best science we have? Why is that so hard for humans? (laughs) And, um, you know, one of my friends keeps saying, don't mistake, you know, humans are all religious at the end of the day. um, I know he has an MDiv, so that's his bias. But uh, anyway, I've had to really, like this year has really forced me to appreciate that, um, human failing that like <laughs> we, we have a really hard time separating science from feelings.
0: I also wondered, we talk a lot about sort of the problems with medicine as empowerment. So I, I wondered if you thought that like if the relationship between um, people in the medical profession has changed since COVID.
1: That's interesting. When I saw in the beginning of the pandemic. Hospitals failing to provide PPE mm-hmm. um, purely because they're stingy for-profit institutions, many of them. <laughs> um and they were they were caught with their pants down, they put their their staff um in right in harm's way. Mm-hmm. Um and I felt like, you know what, doctors are gonna get politicized now. And I feel like I saw that. I saw more emergency physicians um, calling out their institutions on Twitter, um, risking their their jobs, their positions. Um, And I think that the connection between our broken system um, and the lack of care we we showed for healthcare workers, um, the, the profit motive. I feel like all those connections were so, they, they just became so clear in these surges that, um, my thinking was more about how are, how are physicians going to come out of this? Are they going to, are they going to be the, um, the thing that tips the scales toward, um, single payer healthcare? Because, this is just you know now it's now they're in danger we've all been in danger we've all um you know had to give up hours days of our lives on the phone to get things covered we've we've not been able to get treatments you know we've we've felt i mean they have too they've i've talked to so many physicians who've spent hours on the phone trying to get their patients care fighting with insurance companies but now that they couldn't even get masks and gowns right away when they should come on <laughs> yeah um that was something that that really that we we knew this was coming right like this that was a huge failing so what i'm seeing now is the same pattern that i've seen in so many other areas of health especially in maternity care where we have we, ha- we have more faith in the product in the technology than in um the human physiology and I say that I'm th- I'm I'm thinking specifically now of the issue of of acquired immunity. Mm. I, I find this so bizarre um, that this hasn't been a bigger part of the conversation about when we reach herd immunity, about who should be prioritized for vaccines and not just in the US, but globally. The CDC is still sort of just being um agnostic about, about acquired immunity, even though there's research showing that. If you had COVID, and of course, we can only follow people as long as COVID has been around, but there is a a group of people who had COVID early on who were being followed. And as they keep testing them, they're showing, well, still have immunity a year out. Hmm. Um, I just saw a study out of Israel that showed, um, you know, looked at people who had been vaccinated and who had had a prior infection, and they were neck and neck, 95% no reinfection. So it's really odd to me that this has become so politicized. Like if you talk about, nat- and I'm not even saying natural immunity because that word people hate it. So fine, let's not <laughs> talk about natural immunity. Let's just talk about acquired immunity. Um, like the thing that we've all understood is the case with measles, chicken pox, you know, um, because COVID is not the flu. It's it's still not the flu, it's different. Um, as far as I'm reading. So, you know, the fact that we, um, and the CDC is sort of still saying this, well, you still need a vaccine. Um, cause you still need that product. Cause we still have more faith in that product than we do in your body's own immune system, even though it's already fought off COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just one example, you know, um, and again, like with schools, you know, I mean, if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we the goal was to flatten the curve. The goal was to protect the people who were most vulnerable. The goal was to keep, um, to, to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, now we have this amazing vaccine and it's now available in the United States to anyone who wants it. And um, we know it protects people 95%. <laughs> so if you've had the vaccine, you should feel pretty good about going out in the world, no matter who you're coming in cocktail to, no matter if you're around kids, if you're around people who are unmasked, because you've been vaccinated. Um, and yet now we're talking about, well, we can't really open the schools until kids can get the vaccine. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's really, you know, again, hold on, wait, what were the original goals? And do we have data yet on kids? Can we can we at least get some data on kids before we we, we jump to this conclusion? Because we know kids aren't at high risk. And everything, and again, I go back to like, can we evaluate the benefits and harms in an objective way without politicizing it? Because for an, you know, for someone my parents' age, um, absolutely the risk-benefit analysis was get the emergency authorized vaccine. It seems pretty safe, it seems effective, you're at risk. Like that seems like a, a reasonable choice. Um, but for my seven-year-old. Um, he's at no risk. He's at he's at a theoretical risk from COVID. It's like a cold for kids. Mm-hmm. Um and his teachers can be protected. So again, it's like why are we we're putting more faith in in a product than than we need to? Things get very muddled when it gets political and when when there's money involved.
0: So this is the last question that I have um for you before we go to the 2019 conversation, but when you do get back to doing your own work, which hopefully will happen soon, um, has COVID changed the next project that you want to work on? Like where, what's going to happen next? Um,
1: thank you for asking that and um, getting me back to my own, my own interests. Um, I mean, I think I'm I'm really interested in this um, practice of science communication, which has been, I mean, and that's like, that's a, the term, SCICOM for short, um, that you'll see hashtagged. There are a lot of journalists out there who embrace this term, and I, I'm interested in in looking a little more closely at that. I think I think there's some problematic aspects of it, because the question is, well, what are you communicating and where did the information come from? And when you dig a little deeper into um, who's promoting SciComm, it gets a little... There, there tends to be some conflicts of interest there. So I'll just, I'll just kind of <laughs> lay that down, um, and then when I hear this um, aired, uh, it'll give me a kick in the pants to, to get back on my own,
0: <laughs> my own horse. I mean, you, you, I, you know, Jennifer, I, as you know, as I, as I've said, you know, to you in our 2019 conversation, and since you know over email, you know. I mean, your career has coincided with my life in this very uh, interesting way, but always a little too late for me. Um, you know, your, your push came out in 2007. You know, by that time, I'd had two hospital births and, you know, uh, i had already was planning, you know, my first home birth. Uh, and then, you know, everything below the waist came out after I'd already, you know, run out of choices and uh, uh, sort of ended up with this hysterectomy. And you know, I won't go into it now because it would be a whole other podcast. But uh, since the hysterectomy, I had you know major depression, went back on antidepressants, uh, you know, and and now uh, I'm in the midst of this very aggravating battle between uh, the women uh, and doctors and people who are saying. Everyone like you needs to be taking estrogen and the people who are like, oh my God, under no circumstances, you know, all of my friends are going through menopause. It's total chaos out there. Uh, And I'm like, wait, Jennifer, where, you know, there is information, uh, uh, some really helpful information um, in everything below the waist, but, but, but not, I I'm waiting for your menopause book, but I know it's, it's not going to come out until I'm way done. Uh, I have
1: a recommendation for you.
0: Oh, good. What Fresh Hell is This by Heather
1: Corinna. Gender inclusive. Uh, Heather is non-binary. The book is really, I, I mean, it's fun to read. It's hilarious. It's like really deep into the science. I lo- I'm already learning things like 30 pages in. I'm loving it. That's my guide right now as my Daddy starts to do funny things um and I I still love Susan Weeds <laughs> book even though you gotta like you gotta just love that she you know is an herbalist living in the woods right. but I but I still love reading that too because um basically I think that Heather and um and Susan ha- come from a similar perspective in that they're you know they're like look you know let's not let's not like who cares what people say about when perimenopause begins? If you think that something's going on, you're, it's probably happening. Mm-hmm. And like, let's not try to fix it. Let's try to work with it. Um, so I, I think Heather says that early in the book, you know, I'm not here to fix you, mm-hmm. which I think is, you know, that's a good place to start whether you, you know, whether you end up being, needing estrogen Um or not. So,
0: <laughs> well, I, thank you for that. And yeah. I just want to thank you so much again. And listen, obviously, you need to do whatever is best for you and your son and your life. But I did, you know, I've been hearing on the news for months that COVID has sort of uh, set uh, women back about 10 years in terms of their gender equality in the workplace. That cannot happen to you. We need you. We really, really need you. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. Okay. And here's our conversation. So I'm a little (laughs) cranky this morning because I had a really big fight with my husband last night about your book. And I think that the fight is at the core of something that I, and I, that I can't, fully articulate yet but it feels it feels very connected to the central argument of your book and i never i hadn't thought of it from this perspective so listeners know that i had a hysterectomy i didn't want to have a hysterectomy and we're going to talk you know more about that and you know, one of the experiences that I had was I, I was trying to avoid having the hysterectomy and I was trying other treatments and I was asking a lot of questions. You know, what are possible side effects of the hysterectomy? What are possible side effects of the surgery? And, you know, what is the function of the uterus? And every single doctor said to me, the only function of the uterus is to house a baby and. And I said, what is the function of the cervix? Same, nothing, nothing, has no nothing and no side effects. So there are always risks to surgery. That's what they would say. But beyond that, this is a bloodless surgery. That's what they said. Um, They were very focused on that the scars would not be very visible and I could wear a bikini. I asked many times, you know, I see things online that women report depression after a hysterectomy. I see things online that women report sexual dysfunction. No, 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 they said no evidence evidence doesn't show that. That's That's right. Yeah. So I kept saying this doesn't make any sense to me. It's just it goes against my belief in the body in like the way that that you can just take something out and have there be no consequences. And, you know, and I really don't think that, A uterus is the same as like an appendix. And none of this makes any sense to me. But I also had such severe anemia by that point that I really could barely think. And I was bleeding to death. Mm. So, And what I was being told over and over again (sighs) was... We, first of all, I walked in and I could just see on their face. They were like, this woman is going to end up with a hysterectomy. It's just a matter of time. We're going to give her these other things. None of them are going to work and we're going to, she's going to end up with a hysterectomy. We'll read her
1: birth plan.
0: Exactly. We'll we'll look at it. Right. And I saw several doctors and, you know, basically they were like, we are better at doing hysterectomies than we are at removing fibroids. We, this is a better surgery. This is an easier surgery, that, you know, better for them, which I kept saying. And they were like, no, no, no. And they told me all the things, you know. Uh, if, you want, if you want a fibroidectomy, we'll do it, but you're, it's very likely you're going to end up back here again asking for, uh, begging us for a hysterectomy. So why not just get the hysterectomy now? So, okay, I saw the way this train was going. I fought it. I fought it. And then I had a moment where I was sitting on the couch in the other room. My 20-year-old son was sitting on the couch with me, and I knew I, I had this feeling like, This is how people die. And it's time to go to the emergency room. But I don't care enough about going to the emergency room. I'm too tired to go. And I was like, this is a really bad situation. And like hypothermia starts to feel like you're warm. Yeah, Yeah. I couldn't even, I couldn't, I couldn't sit up. I was sort of like, and I just, I kept having this, these like, these sort of floaty thoughts, like you could just let go. You could just let go. Wow. And, I, and I don't know, like, had my son not been sitting there, because I really, I just remember looking at him and just thinking, you know, this is not, this is not a, it would be fine, actually. It really doesn't seem so bad to just let go and kind of just die. But this is not really great for him or, you know, my 19-year-old or my 12-year-old. And I was like, I think I, I think I should probably go to the hospital you know? And so, okay. So fast forward to, I'm reading your book and it's answering the questions, you know, not necessarily with definitive answers, but it's saying like, yeah, there is evidence that there are side effects, you know, and it's, it's, it's like very descriptive. All the questions I asked, you know, you are considering in the book. So last night I read my husband, uh, first of all, my son is going to read the book. My husband said he was going to read the book, but then I don't know if he's going to. And I read him the pages on hysterectomies and I I am extraordinarily upset about this whole situation. And first of all, he kept pushing back on what I was saying, on what you had written and and saying like, "So they're just lying? So the doctors are just lying to you?" And you know, I was saying as, you know, I hope we'll talk about I don't think that's the, that's right. They're not lying. They're not trying to intentionally harm me. You know, this is a, this is the story with all inherent bias. This is an institutional practice. There are all of these reasons why they think that they are helping and it's not. And, and someone can be telling the truth and the truth is wrong. You know, they're saying there are no side effects and that's just not right. So once we got past that and my frustration with not being believed by him after not being believed by every single doctor and feeling this enormous pressure from everyone to just be like grateful for this hysterectomy, which I can be grateful that it saved my life and be really pissed that that was the best option that I had and that I wasn't taken seriously I don't know how anyone can call my experience in the hospital consensual, despite the fact that I signed all those papers. <laughs> like that is not normal. That's not normal. That's not medical care. Mm-hmm. They did mm-hmm. save my life, I think, yeah, yeah. and I I'm glad to be alive. Yeah. Okay. They didn't really have many other options for you, right? Yeah. Okay. So the fight really came, though, actually, when I we I he I was like, "Why are you pushing back? Why are you pushing back?" And he said why do you want to know these things? You've already had the hysterectomy. It's too late. And I said, of course I want to know these things. Who wouldn't want to know these things? I wish I'd known them before. I wouldn't necessarily not have gotten the hysterectomy because I didn't have another choice. I still wish I'd known all of these things before, and I want to know what might happen to me next. And the only way to make good healthcare decisions going forward is to know the truth about what's happening inside my body. And he said, I think you're just a really unusual person. Most people don't want to know anything about what's happening inside their bodies. And I said, I absolutely do not believe you. That is, that is so fundamental to every, like every part of my, like being alive on this planet is about wanting to know what's happening inside my body and outside my body and in a text and in language and in interpersonally and like how, and I said to him like, how you you, I, you wouldn't. And I, I, I said, okay, when somebody has said that when the doctor says you need your prostate removed, And they say, okay, you have have prostate cancer. You know, there's a risk of impotence, but you know, you're going to die of prostate cancer do you not want to know that there's a chance that you might be impotent? Of course you want to know. And what if you don't have cancer? And they're like, we just think we'd like to remove your prostate because we think it might help with, uh, you know, your left finger. And so... You might get cancer later. Right. You might get... Exactly. You might get cancer later. Um, You might be like, well, if the risk is that I might be impotent, I think I might not do this now. I was like, how could you not? Like, of course you would want to know all of those things. And he maintained, he, I mean, we sort of considered maybe this is a, on some level a gender difference. And I am aware of the fact that, like, certainly not all women want to know no. what's happening in their bodies or all of the side effects. But I think this is at the heart of why you specifically are putting this healthcare crisis in connection with feminism. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you really talk about how there are ideological forces at play, not just capitalism, not just, um, you know, patriarchy. And I think, I promise you I'm going to stop talking in one second. (laughs) I think that the question of what feminism, you know, really is, is it inherently about challenging authority? Is it inherently about wanting to know? And, And then also, you know, I mean, it's incredibly infantilizing to imagine that someone wouldn't want to or need to know. Right. But I think that ideological difference, I just, I could not, I mean, I, I, he fell asleep immediately and started <laughs> snoring, and I was lying there thinking, this is Sorry. the biggest difference between us, of all the differences. And there are a lot of differences and, and a lot of similarities. But I, I really felt like your book, <laughs> like, it wasn't just that he didn't, doesn't understand how angry I am about the hysterectomy. It was really like, what is it like to be a person who goes through life not wanting to know? Oh God, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I
1: think there's something very comforting to people about the idea that that we can go to physicians and trust them and that they do have this expertise about our bodies and that they know what the right thing to do is because there are so many decisions that one needs to make as one goes through life and things with parts of the body stop working or, you know, there's pathology, like there's so many complex decisions and it's the, the, the idea that, that one has the authority over one's body and one should understand, you know, try to understand everything and make the best decision. It takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. and it's a huge amount of responsibility and I think it's perceived, it's, it's not something that this culture that we're in fosters. It's not, it's not valued, and I think it's actually looked upon, it's looked down upon, really, right? Like, if you don't listen to your doctor, if you don't want the chemo, if you make a decision that is against, going against, what, six doctors and the media and your family, like, it's really hard. It's really hard to go against social structures like that. And, and it's, you know, if you take responsibility, that's, that's, that's huge. That's a huge burden, right? If you, so we perceive, I think we perceive this, like, you know, if we, if we let someone else be the expert and let someone else make the decision, there's some comfort in that. But on the other hand, I have talked to so many women who, when something goes wrong with the treatment, or the treatment isn't what they thought it was, the first person they blame is actually not usually the doctor. It's themselves Yeah, because they're like, I should have asked for more opinions. I should have done more research. I should have listened to that little voice in my head. I should have, you know, I should have, I should have, I should have. I think that like what the, the argument that you and your husband are having is a microcosm of attention that I just came up against myself, which is like, we have this really strong, medical paradigm that we've put, you know, we've put MDs at the top of this hierarchy of knowledge and expertise about the body and health and healing. And, you know, when you go against the paradigm, you're a heretic, you're, (laughs) you know, you're, you're doing something wrong, right? And it's, and people perceive it as a judgment on themselves.
0: Or other women right so okay so your book is called everything below the waist why healthcare needs a feminist revolution and the introduction i think really does a great job of of talking about exactly what you're saying now uh the introduction is called the problem with medicine as empowerment right and i just want to be really clear that the book does not slam doctors it does not vilify doctors it does not it's not a like anti-vaccination book, I, you know. I'm, and I'm just using that as a shorthand because yeah. you are critical of. Uh, you talk about Gardasil, you talk about the HPV vaccine. So it, it's. It, but I but I use anti-vax as a as like a code word for you're not against medicine. You know, far from it. Um, you are very much uh, looking at what is evidence based care. But you're saying like to to go to medicine as a form of empowerment to give uh, these experts this godlike power is super problematic. And um, the way feminism sort of the unfinished work of feminisms in the 1970s and and following became aligned with medicine as empowerment uh you know, it, it is this enormous loss of of wisdom and knowledge, protection, personhood, legal rights, legal justice, um, and, and now we're in this mess. So, you know, in your introduction, you lay out this problem in pretty urgent terms, and these statistics were quite upsetting. Um, 42 percent of U.S. counties, in 42 percent of U.S. counties, women's life expectancy is decreasing. U.S. women are dying at younger ages than our international peers. The quality of years we're living, which is extremely important, is worse than men's. In 2013, women entering adulthood are more likely than their mothers to develop a chronic illness. And you're asking, well, why is this? And There are several factors. Um, There's obviously no one thing, uh, including our increasingly toxic environment, which affects women differently and and more extremely in some ways than men, lack of guaranteed health care and racism, which negatively affects the health of both black women and black men. And you also mentioned four reasons that may account for the deteriorating health outcomes for American women. So inherent bias, and I mean... There's sort of like inherent bias in all the other factors as well, but inherent bias in and of itself, endocrine disrupting chemicals and things like tap water and cosmetics, lotions, et cetera. lack of research funding for things that affect women's health. I cannot believe how little any OBGYN or general practitioner knew about the uterus, <laughs> let alone menopause. Like I, I was shocked. I was like, how do you not know these things? Um and over-treatment. And I think that this over-treatment issue is right at the heart of the problem with medicine as empowerment, right. because if you're being over-treated and the treatment is causing harm, but you have have connected treatment with care and with empowerment and it's not and you can't find the real experts and the whole system is stacked against you on every single level, then you end up uh, like me, you know, or, um, you know, in a way actually fighting for the thing that's hurting you. Um, Mm. And I think that that's, and, Mm. and, and one of the things part of the introduction, I'd like to maybe start by talking about Um, why it's so difficult to have an open conversation about hormonal birth control, Mm -hmm, mm because that I think is the example that I think will be most surprising, but also kind of... Uh, accessible to listeners in a a certain way. You know, like how did we get to a point where any time a strong, informed researcher, writer uh, like you is trying to basically protect women, inform women, they get slammed by other women (laughs) and seen as, you know, like taking down other women, which is just it's just horrifying, you know, and, and it happens, uh, you know, over and over again in the birth Gets world. Get your journalism out of my uterus. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> well
1: maybe I should talk a little bit yeah, please about do. that history. Please do. So, you know, this, this book grew out of pushed. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to get it done. <laughs> um, you know, like basically I, what I, what I document and pushed is how over-treatment in maternity care has become the standard of care, mm-hmm. right? It's become routine to subvert the physiology, to induce labor and not let labor happen spontaneously, to use hormones, to convert the labor process into you know, the, the active management, the, 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 the medically managed labor rather than the labor that progresses on its own terms. Um, and and that it you takes know, a
0: long time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It takes a long time. Right. Um, and so, and we put women on their backs and, and we, we use instruments and we, we very frequently now resolve labor with surgery Mm -hmm. and surgically remove the baby and treat the, the uterus as something that can just be opened and closed and that, right. That it's okay to do that. It was For a a good portion of the 2000s, it was presented as, like, equivalent. Right. Yeah.
0: And so I I came out of pushed and... Well, let me just say one other thing. Go ahead. Because I I just think, you know, you and I have been thinking about these things and, like, been in labor rooms and all these things. But I think that it is important to say, because I think so much of this book does... It follows, as you're saying, from PUSH. But so cesarean sections are the most common surgery in the United States. The rate is what, about... Almost 33%. It's 32-something. Right. Yeah. And so consistently the World Health Organization has estimated that a cesarean rate of, it's like under 10%. Like it's s- somewhere between 10 and
1: 15% is estimated at the, the, that to be the threshold where, you know, the benefits outweigh the harms. Right. Because it's major surgery... Right, so there's big risks to to the mother, and by skipping the the vagina, mm-hmm. the baby is missing out on lung compression that gets the fluid out. Ba- the baby's missing out on the gut, get, getting his or her gut ca- colonized. There's there's a lot that's missing from a cesarean birth for both you know that uh, impacts the baby and um, the person giving birth. And so yeah, so the so that's the idea. Like when we talk about over treatment. The idea is that, you know, every treatment has, has its benefits but also has its risks. And the sweet spot is when the treatment is, is given when it's necessary to, to save someone's life or to right. just create a better outcome. But when you start doing them too often, and the same thing applies to screening techniques, mm-hmm. and anytime you go over that threshold, it's over-treatment. And some of it has been tricky to figure out. It takes epidemiology to look at the vast data and to say that oh okay actually an annual pap test is is it's it's resulting in more harm than good so we're going to make it we're going to recommend it three years and like it's it's a constant you know epidemiologist looking at the data and pulling back and changing you know it's it's science (laughs) that's science like constantly looking and 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 adjusting Um, so that's right so Right. No one's saying that cesareans should never happen. Right. And (laughs) they're an important intervention that that made birth safer. Once the cesarean became safer, that's it was the cesarean and and antibiotics that really brought the maternal death and infant death rate down. It it was not moving women into the hospital and Mm -hmm. having doctors deliver them. Mm -hmm. And this is a big misconception. And, you know, what people think of as like, oh, well, before doctors, women were dying left and right. That's not exactly the case.
0: And just to be like incredibly clear about this, you and I who are saying there is evidence, there is scientific medical data that says that this rate of cesarean is too high and is causing harm to mother and baby, this is not because we are saying, which may, we may also believe, that that having a, an unmedicated birth or a vaginal delivery has some sort of um, benefit spiritually um, or emotionally to the mother. That may also be true, and that's important, but right, right now we are saying from a medical standpoint, this has been pre- proven. That doesn't mean that that you can say that one particular woman needs right. or doesn't need a cesarean section, which is what gets so tricky, right. but we can say w- when we're talking about overtreatment, we're talking about it from a scientific perspective. I just wanted to yeah, put that separate, out Yeah, they're
1: separate, right? They, th- those are two different conversations. Like we could we could have the conversation about what birth means spiritually and what, right. you know, what someone gets out of it if they, you know, yes, that that's true, but there's a public health issue, which is that we're cutting women open a lot, and we're not supporting vaginal birth after cesarean, mm-hmm. um, and we're we're cutting women open when their babies are breech. Yep. Even wh- you know, even though science, uh, scientific research, medical research has shown that actually they could be attended to with skills mm-hmm. and have you know, it, it would be a very reasonable choice. In fact, maybe a safer choice. If you look downstream, like one of the problems is that people are looking at that one birth,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the 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 trouble is that cesareans create downstream impacts on the next pregnancy, on the uterus, on the the likelihood of a hysterectomy, mm-hmm. on a lot of things. Um, I just saw I was at a, a conference um, about breech birth and autonomy and and rights and obstetric skills and all of that, and I saw some really shocking slides from uh, the, so looking at the, um, mortality rate for post-cesarean in resource poor countries. Mm. And so this is how, you know, um, we in the United States have exported our notion that every woman needs to be in the hospital with a doctor and, you know, but what happens to the woman who, you know, is planning to have six pregnancies or more, right. And she has like a cesarean the first time because we put her in a hospital and she, you know, couldn't open up there for whatever reason. And the mortality rates were so high. Yeah. I mean, like 1%. Right. 1% for, you know, once you've had a cesarean in some of these countries. Because because what happens when she goes back to her village and develops an infection? Yep. Or what happens in the next pregnancy when the placenta, you know, she has a placental um, abnormality, which is more common. Mm-hmm. And then what what happened? What if the clinic's not there anymore? What if the doctor has left town? Or You know, so... So that's what we're we're talking about and we have a public health crisis in this country and it's multi you know there there are a lot of different reasons it it's not just the cesarean rate mm-hmm. a lot of it is racism and a lot mm-hmm. of it is our deteriorating health yep and our lack of universal coverage and our poverty and everything else that's going on in this country there's like so many reasons but there is a direct relationship between Overuse of cesarean section and the complication of a catastrophic hemorrhage down the road, and that that means death. Yes. Okay. And and those deaths, re- each death represents a lot of other women who have had devastating complications. Correct. And health
0: issues, etc. And just to put this in perspective for someone who may feel like, yeah, but you know okay it causes some complications for some women and okay death for a few no the united states is now the most dangerous place to have a baby in the developed world for a black woman in new york city 12, they're
1: 12 times more likely to die in childbirth right, than a white woman right and and that disparity is very extreme in, in, across the states that that's a very extreme disparity right and And so
0: we're this is not a joke you know by any stretch of the imagination this is not some kind of like Birkenstock wearing, you know. Right, it's not a lifestyle concern. issue. It's exactly. so
1: often presented by the media as, you know, natural birth, quote unquote, or, you know, the times won't use that word anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it's like this lifestyle issue. It's this it's trendy, it's trendy to have a doula. It's about your birth experience. Um, you know, and and like the 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 way that birth centers even cater, you know, they they're trying to create an experience, but this is that that may be true, right? That's like the other conversation. But this is about like, this is life and death. This is life and death. And this is and this is how we're creating our people. this is how we're creating yes. life and how we're creating kids and communities. Yes. and and i I think one thing that gets lost is like the impact on the family of a traumatic birth. Yes, it's huge. I mean, so the woman survived. Maybe the woman didn't even have any major complications except that she feels completely, um, pretty much raped mm-hmm. you know the very similar yep ptsd feelings of powerlessness that she didn't listen to that little voice in her head she didn't stick up for herself like all this like shame and and what that does to a person as they're taking care of this new baby in this mm-hmm. culture that gives mothers absolutely no support you know it's huge yeah so that's what it's about it's about it is it's about life and death and and the health of the family and, right. you know, our democratic ideals of pursuit of happiness and everything. So it's bigger than it. It just, I, I, I hate the way it gets diminished as yes. this, like, you know, I remember the time the first time the New York times wrote about home birth, it was in the home section. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the, the main things was like, did the rug survive the right. home birth?
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, I had a home birth with my third and I cannot tell you how many women said some version even directly, this, well, I um, didn't, I, I didn't, I wanted to have my baby in the hospital or I wanted to have an elective cesarean because I cared about my baby's life. And I was like, wow, that is so interesting that someone thinks that I am choosing this <laughs> right. because I don't care about my baby. Um, in, in any case, so you... That's a conversation killer at the playground. I know, right? <laughs> okay, we're not going to be mom friends. I know. And I, I i have had to be very, very careful about, you know, who I speak to. And and actually, I, I had a very hard... Part of my hysterectomy saga was that it was... I, I had a very hard time finding a gynecologist before I even started having problems because you know you can't tell a lot of gynecologists that you've had a home birth.
2: That's um, so
0: true. It's yeah. very threatening to yep. them. Yep. Um okay, but anyway, I'm getting off track. So p- the, all of this is in pushed. There's an update on birth in everything below the waist, but go back to you were you were contextualizing this book having having uh, talking about pushed. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I noticed what I noticed was that
1: these themes of um undermining physiology and Disrespecting women's autonomy in the medical realm were happening throughout the lifespan. Like what what's what goes on in maternity care? And maybe this was just so obvious that <laughs> you know, this kind of like hit me after, but I was like, oh, this is happening throughout mm-hmm. our lifespan. Some of some of the women who opened my eyes to this were women who had had hysterectomies. Mm-hmm. And again you know what they were telling me and what i could find in the evidence and literature and what doctors were saying did not match up. Yep. And i'm always really interested in those places where narratives don't match up with evidence. And i as a journalist i respect people's narratives, you know? It's and i put it into context. Like i know it's not data. I know it's not it's not big data. I know it's not "quote unquote" scientific evidence, right? Because it's not yet. But but it is data. It's data points. Every everyone's narrative is a data point, point. Um, and so the, there are lots of places where the, those weren't lining up, like people's experience with hormonal contraception and what doctors say about it and what you constantly read in the media about it. And, and just
0: can I? I'm going to interrupt you yeah. one more time, which is just to say, if anyone's listening and they they're still listening and they think like. Why am I listening to this on a on a poetry podcast or a literary podcast? Okay, I get that Rachel had a hysterectomy, so she's the host, and I have to listen to whatever she's interested in. But it's not just that. I mean, this what what you just said, Jennifer, about respecting lived experience. And yes, it is it is not yet science. It is not yet evidence, but it is a data point is is at the heart of what I care about, about language, about poetry, about literature, about the way in which if the poem, if the body of literature and art does not contain the lived experience of, for example, women, mothers, women of color, we have lost those data points. We have you know, it's again having the information. Absolutely, it's, it's exactly what you were talking about before. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, you can't write anything. You can't make art. You can't go look at art if, first of all, if you're not alive. If you're not well enough. If you're, if you are. In severe pain, if you're in chronic pain and nobody's listening to you, if you know, you're undergoing cancer treatment or you're recovering from surgery necessary or unnecessary. Um, this, this is all connected. So, okay, now I'm going to stop. Yeah. I mean, I,
1: we are having all these interesting conversations right now about power Mm -hmm. and how power is undermined based on the color of your skin or where you come from or, you know, all these circumstances. And I, that is, that was one of my big questions. Like I was looking at all those statistics of women having more chronic disease now and uh, now even lower life expectancy and, um, and looking at all the ways that we're dealing with all this over treatment and mistreatment and dismissal. And like, how is that affecting how, you know, our power in society, how is it affecting what we're creating, our ability to create Mm -hmm. and the stories that we're telling? And yeah, so I'm, I, I, Right there with you. Good. Okay. All right. Go um, on. <laughs> so I came. I came out of Push pushed noticing this pattern, these patterns, and one of my big questions, and it was a question when I wrote Push, and I couldn't quite answer it. Was why you know. What, women are being, their power is being violated. Their mm-hmm. bodies are being violated. Their power is being undermined in the context of maternity care routinely as a matter mm-hmm. of standard of care. And th- and this is still going on. I mean, I'm amazed that my, b- my push is still, it's still selling. It's still being taught. I was just at a conference where people wanted, wanted to buy it. Mm-hmm. I actually went and ordered a bunch and sent them out because I was like, oh my God, my book's 12 years old and people still want it because it's still all happening. Mm-hmm. Um... And why, why is wasn't this a big feminist issue? I just couldn't understand. Like, most women, not all women, most women do give birth at some point. Ninety nine percent of us are doing it in hospitals, mm-hmm. and experiencing some level of this, of this phenomenon, of this, of this uh, undermining um, and disempowering and possibly abusive treatment. Why? Where are the feminists on this? Like, why isn't this a big issue for now. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course there's like the abortion thing, what you have to deal with. Yeah. And I get that, but I, but there's something else, like there was something else. I was like, there's some other reason. And why, why, when I talk to feminists, they're like, but, but OBGYNs are great, you know, mm-hmm. but my, by, but my OBGYN is a feminist. That's not going to happen, you know? And so I, with this book, I was like, I I really want to understand this. And so I, I went back and looked at the feminist health movement of the 70s, which is really a separate, you know, it was one of the feminisms. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, it it did have a relationship to midwifery and the resurgence of midwifery and home birth. It absolutely did. And it brought us books like Our Bodies, Ourselves and A New View of a Woman's Body. And it brought us the activism against the the dangers of the pill. Mm-hmm. Because when the pill first came on the market, it was you know, there was a really high association with blood clots. So it brought us drug labeling. It brought us a lot of really important things. And it was very skeptical of the medical establishment. It was very aware of the history. Um, like there's that great book by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English um, for her own good mm-hmm. uh, about the history of medicine and, and the, sex, the inherent sexism and patriarchy um, of that. Of, of organized medicine, and we can talk more about that. So it was very aware of, of that history. It was skeptical of pharma influence, even in the 70s. And it was so curious about the female body and, and had a real, like, reverence for the physiology, you know? Like, let's, you know, th- we know, we, we're, we're hearing one thing from the experts, quote-unquote, in offices with the white coats on, but, like, let's sit in circles and talk about what's actually going on. And when they started to do that, they realized, oh we're having a totally different conversation than what we're getting, what, what the, the white coats are telling us mm-hmm. and doing to us. And that, that's the feminist health movement. Like, let's create a new literature. Let's get women to take this medical tool and look at our own bodies and access our own bodies and give ourselves abortions. Mm-hmm. And this movement had, there was tension. So it was, it's, it's really interesting to think about that, that in the early 70s, um, even late 60s, there was like there was this, this feminist health movement, but then there was the more mainstream feminist critique, which was, you know, more concerned about getting women into men's spaces Mm -hmm. and having access to the same consumerism that men had and which was all very important. Right. Um, and, but there was tension. And so like, I can, I can pull a few threads of that. Like, uh, Shulamit Firestone is one person who dreamed of this external womb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, like, you know, our bodies are oppressing us. Right. Our cycle is, you know, a curse, and childbirth is this barbaric thing. And lactation is God. You know, enslavement. Mm-hmm. And um, if we could only just externalize our body, if we could just basically equalize our body with with the male body, mm-hmm. and just remove this whole reproductive re- reproduction problem. Then we'll be equal. Mm -hmm. And I think that ideology has held a big sway over and I don't think it's even conscious, you know. Um, But I think that that, you know, what happened was that Roe v. Wade happened and the feminist health movement wasn't so important anymore because, Mm. you know, now we could go to clinics to get abortions. We didn't need to... Learn, you know, we didn't need the speculum anymore. Like now, now it's sanctioned medical care. And now we're pushing women, you know, we're getting women into, into this historically male dominated institution. They'll fix it, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, that was the, that was the strategy. It was like, we'll just put women in, in those positions. You know, that mainstream liberal feminism, as it's called, was really, you know, it fit well with capitalism. It was about getting women to work, getting women in men's spaces. Believing that if we just flooded medicine and law and science and everywhere, that we would change the the dynamic. And this idea of like knowing your body and this reverence for female physiology and this curiosity about female physiology and the idea that, you know, a birth, you know, I mean, I... We could, maybe we should read some Adrian Rich on your (laughs) show, but this idea that the body, that the the female bodily processes could have power, Mm -hmm. which was such a radical idea that she had. And apparently it still is because we have a real hard time talking about what women's bodies do. Like we're much more comfortable talking about what's wrong with them and how to medicate them and what procedures we need, like people are really uncomfortable talking about the the birth process which i've always you know been just in awe of um, there's something like feminists feel like that's anti-feminist in some way right i've i've hit up against this a lot just like j- there's just like a tone of like well that's all that's all like natural woo bs mm, right. you know like it's not that's not no like we're pro science we're pro, we're pro science and technology. And so that's when, so that, that's my, that was my, um, that's my concern with this book is that if we associate the body, our own bodies with oppression and mm-hmm. patriarchy, which is such a weird thing to wrap your head around that our bodies are part, how could our bodies be part of patriarchy? But that's the, the association we have. Mm-hmm. And so if they're part of patriarchy, then we look to medical technology to empower us and create equality. And that means that we've embraced the pill and kept it on this pedestal, mm-hmm. not to say that it didn't have revolutionary powers when it came on the market. It did. But I think we've kept it on this pedestal for ideological reasons, not for for scientific reasons. And we look to fertility medicine mm-hmm. instead of the harder thing of, you know reshaping <laughs> our world and culture yep. so that we could actually have babies when our when our bodies are you know physiologically capable capable mm-hmm. of it and we look to medicating menopause and we look to epidurals and we so we just you know if we have this inherent bias toward medicine and medical technology well then I think that leaves us vulnerable to overtreatment and and it, if we're not skeptical about everything coming down the pharma pipeline Because if it's sold to us as empowerment, then we, you know, we buy it. And I think we've done that in many cases. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, I think like we can see that there are costs to all this overtreatment. There are costs to being on hormonal contraception for years, um, which is, like you said, a really uncomfortable conversation to have. There are costs to fertility medicine Mm -hmm. that we haven't even quantified because no one's looking at it in any meaningful way. But we know they're there. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are costs to intervening in the birth process and there are costs right they and they and they accumulate toward the end of life and so i think like so many women end up with the the kind of symptoms and and pathology that you were dealing with yep. and and for a multitude of reasons but we end up at this place where so many of us are full of fibroids yep why no one has even i mean here's here's an area where where is the research? Mm -hmm. This is something that like 70% of women get. Mm -hmm. And we're just like, yep, things grow in uteruses. And then we just take the uterus out. Like that's just, that's been acceptable enough to us. Right. You know, it's been acceptable enough to medicine, but it's been acceptable enough to women to just, yep. You know, at some point, I mean, a lot of people told me like, oh yeah, in my family, it's just like, it's pretty much known at some point you're going to have a hysterectomy. That's just like part of being a woman in my family. Um, And so we've, you know, we've accepted this. And
0: there are costs that we can't ignore. But the other problem with being pro-science and pro-technology and seeing medicine as empowerment is, first of all, the history of medicine is absolutely inextricable. I'm not telling anyone not to ever go to a doctor. I'm saying the history of medicine is based on slavery racism and misogyny it it was medicine became a profession by trying to eradicate midwifery and the history of uh, hormonal birth control or all birth control and interference with women's fertility and with birth cannot be separated from eugenics and so if you think, OK, I am a feminist and I what I want is power, you know, for women and, and contr- I want to control my fertility. I want to decide when I have a child, if I have a child, how I have a child. I support that. But you have to recognize that you are going to a system that is that has a problematic, to say the least, uh, history with misogyny, racism, and, and eugenics. So you you can't really separate that. And you had like, so when I went in and, and, and said, and I, we're definitely going to continue this and go back to hormonal birth control. But when I went in and asked about the hysterectomy and the fibroids and all these things in the uterus, I mean, I cannot tell you a female OB, male OB, everyone, they, they used the phrase, the uterus has no function other than reproduction. It's called a reproductive organ, not a sex organ. And unless you have, they said, there are no side effects unless you have a sentimental attachment to Mm -hmm, your uterus mm -hmm. and you need your uterus to help you feel Feel like like a a woman. woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck that. I knew enough to say there is misogyny at play here. Right. You know, that doesn't mean I don't need the right. hysterectomy, but that phrase. So, right. You, you know,
1: you know yourself, you know that if you put your finger up your vagina, you hit your cervix, which is your uterus. Mm-hmm. You know that if you're having sex and a penis hits that, it, it's part of the whole experience and the sensation. And what's fascinating now is that people are mapping out the nerves of the cervix and their relationship to orgasm mm-hmm. and sensation. And you know that if a uterus is taken out, including the cervix, well, what happens to the top of the vagina? Well, I It asked, has to be
0: closed up. <laughs> I, asked, I asked the doctor, what's at the top of my vagina? And he said, your vagina. And I said, but what's at the top? Because it used to be my cervix. So I know I don't have a cervix anymore. So what's at the top? And he literally just kept saying over and over and over again, your vagina. And I was like, this is making me crazy. Like what I, so did you sew it up? Like, you know, and I I love the fact that also that like I, that I just had a moment where I was like, oh my God, can I say this on my own podcast? But like, I mean, it's so important for people to know. It's
1: so important for people to know. Right. And I found a very excellent surgeon physician in Wisconsin who generously gave me like an hour and a half long. Tutorial mm-hmm. <laughs> complete with a video of his own you know him doing a procedure uh-huh. because I really wanted to understand yes. what is involved in this procedure that everyone keeps telling me is like operation like c- like the game operation we just pluck it out and it's no big deal I really want right. to know what what are the steps involved and it's a bloodless operation it's I mean there are major arteries that yeah. are being se- severed and they' the artery t- i mean I'm sorry one of the vessels to the uh, Am I saying this right? It might be the artery to the ovaries Mm -hmm. is clipped. It's, 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 so, you know, and he explained, that's the main supply main blood supply to the ovaries where we're cutting it. So that's why in so many cases, the ovaries stop functioning. and You go through menopause. Um, so, I mean, he walked me through step-by-step there are ligaments that need to be cut and severed there and, and the ligaments that hold the vagina up depend. And this again, depends on the technique Mm -hmm. and the, and the care of the yep. surgeon or of how how much they want to support that vagina now, because the vagina was attached to the strongest organ the str- and, and this surgeon actually talked about um, those ligaments are the strongest in the human body because they have to support a uterus pregnant mm-hmm. and those those ligaments get cut, right and so he explained that well, we can save parts of them. We can save a part of them that will keep holding the vagina up. But, you know, in older women or like they're not always that strong anymore. They're they're stretched out. Like, and this is when you get, you know, because now the vagina is is there. It's not attached anymore to mm-hmm. the this amazing organ that's probably the most undervalued and understudied organ in the human body mm-hmm. because, oh, it just reproduces. That's all it does. Right. Of course, that's not all it does. That's not, you know, all our organs have... There's a lot of redundancy in the human body, so it doesn't even make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's a cuff. They call it a vaginal cuff. Yep. And I can't believe that physician didn't even give you the respect to tell you that. Yep. Like, of course you want to know. And, there, and that's, like, a valid question because you knew the anatomy going into it, and obviously now it's different. So what's there? Um, and so to say, yeah, so they can point to the research evidence, Because there's very little. Mm -hmm. There are only a handful of studies looking at the relationship between hysterectomy and quote-unquote sexual function. And as a researcher, another researcher at the University of Wisconsin explained to me, there are very few studies. They tend to follow women only one or two years out from their hysterectomy. And they only ask about things like how frequently do you have vaginal penile intercourse? Mm -hmm. They're not going in depth to ask about sensation, orgasm, like... There's not a big literature. There's not a vast literature on the impacts of hysterectomy. And so doctors can, yes, point to it and say, well, there's no evidence. No, we've studied that. Well, you know, scientists know that a couple of studies is not enough to definitively say, no, we've studied that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, people even debate about breastfeeding, even though there are like thousands of studies about breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Um, So this again, like what I was hearing from people and what I was hearing from doctors didn't match up. And so I really, really wanted to understand this. And I'm so glad he went through this with me, even after explaining all this to me, when I asked him, so how do you what's the conversation you have with with women? What do you tell them about what might be the after Mm -hmm. effects? And it was the same. It was like, The, you know, well, there's infection and complications of surgery and, um, but you know, there's no, there's no evidence that it has any impact on sexual function. And I said, well, but I mean, I know a lot of women who feel their cervix when they're having sex. So, Mm -hmm. and he said, well, I guess it's possible, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, it's just not in, it's not what, it's not what's taught. It's not in the literature. And I think like, this is a problem that I just encountered, um, in the Twitterverse this This confusion about when something is not studied or not studied well um the the scientific thing to say is that we don't have enough evidence mm-hmm. like we don't have we don't have large studies that followed women years out from their hysterectomy right but what, but but there's logic <laughs> right there's certainly a friends. logic that it could have an impact on your sexual function if your vagina is now a little shorter mm-hmm. and is no longer attached to the strongest ligament in the human body. Like it makes sense. It's not a crazy question, right? But it's treated as like, Oh no, no, no. Pat. You. And again, I mean, I think like so much of medicine is still this, it, it looks different now, but in a sense, what that, what that doctor was doing was like pat you on the head. You don't really need to know the yep. details. We know what's best. Don't worry. We've we, we've we're the experts and you know like your questions aren't really and that's that's old school that that comes right from the dark history of of medicine which you're right is is totally tied to racism slavery white supremacy and misogyny mm-hmm. and what people don't understand i think is that this paradigm we're living in where we put mds at the top of this hierarchy of knowledge and expertise is only 150 years old it's like a blip in human history mm-hmm. and it was a hostile male take a hostile white male takeover of a female healing profession that's that was the birth of of organized medicine in this country and you know yes midwives didn't have antibiotics back then and we didn't have C sections and you know yes there was a higher maternal death rate and infant mortality rate but when you go back and look it actually wasn't it wasn't that high it actually got worse when women were moved into hospitals right. before hand washing yep. was believed to be needed so women died of of childbed fever because dirty hands were being put inside them. Mm -hmm. So, like, we have this really skewed history. They did a very good job of of discrediting midwives, smearing midwives, um, putting them out of business, passing laws. I mean, the abortion laws in this country, the original laws that criminalized abortion, were directly to eliminate the competition of midwifery. Mm-hmm. It was not a moral campaign. It had, no, the abortion was not a, a moral issue in those days. This was a strategic professional strategy. <laughs> and it worked. I mean, midwifery was essentially eliminated for decades. And birth moved completely into the hospital. And what happens in most maternity delivery labor and delivery wards is still this like putting women... immobilizing them taking over the the birth process with drugs and and tools and surgery and handing them a baby delivering Mm -hmm. the baby it's Mm -hmm. not you know we still don't respect it as something that the the person giving birth does right even though we have vast evidence now that that results in better
0: outcomes Mm -hmm. so let's Let's get to the problem with hormonal birth control because, you know, I could talk about hysterectomies this entire time because I care very much about it because it just happened to me because it's going to happen to, you know, a third of women um, in this country. Shockingly few people care about middle-aged women at all and hysterectomies, not at all. But I do think people still care about their daughters. People care about fertility. So can we talk about, because this was very shocking to me. And, you know, I I knew some of it, but I didn't know all of it. And, you know, I have a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old son. And as far as I can tell, all of their female friends are on hormonal birth control, whether it's uh, the pill, or a hormonal IUD, the patch, the ring, the shot. Yep. You know, yep. Um. And you know they 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 have the, the implant. implant, and they're and they're quite proud of these. And I have over and over and over again have had women. I mean, every gynecologist is pushing them. So many women have said that they that they need this. Um, hormonal IUD because they don't get their period anymore and so it's they're so liberated, right? This is the this is what's coming up over and over and over again. And so what is the problem with hormonal birth control and why is this such a hard conversation to have? Because this is the same problem we're having with all of this medical treatment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So one way to reframe this is to talk about the ovulatory cycle, mm-hmm. when you have it, is you know spikes of a series of hormones, right? It's like it's the progesterone, it's the estradiol, it's the um, you know the FSH and the LH, and it's like if you look at the chart, it's going up and down, and um, you know there are very few researchers doing this work, but the few that are, like Geraldine Pryor mm-hmm. in Canada, talk about how this cycle is protective in a lot of ways. Like we often hear about how it's depleting and we think, I think we think of it as this depleting thing. We've all heard the, the narrative that we're bleeding too much now because mm-hmm. back in the day we were just pregnant and breastfeeding all the time and now like, you know, we're bleeding too much. Um, but actually she makes the argument that, you know, this surge of progesterone and these surges of estrogen are protective for the heart and various other systems, and, you know, the, the, the way that the endocrine system, inter, like the, the way that all the systems interact, the adrenal, the high, so, so our, our ovulatory cycle is part of the HPA axis, mm-hmm. the <laughs> hypothalamic pituitary adrenal ac- axis. And, you know, the scientists who appreciate the complexity of the body and are interested in this what they told me was like, we don't understand fully how hormonal birth control is impacting the body as a multi-system organism, right? We don't, we have only scratched the surface of how it's impacting it, but we know that it impacts metabolism. Mm -hmm. It impacts the um, heart. It impacts our blood, it, it impacts our mental health, mm-hmm. our sexual function, our bone density, it, it's impacting us. And, you know, I've, I've been aware of that for, you know, I mean, again, if you talk to scientists and, and a certain kind of doctor, they're very aware of this, they're concerned about maybe a relationship between the pill and yeast infections, mm-hmm. even They're, they've noticed that. Um, they've, there's also a relationship between the cervix being able to clear, you know, HPV mm-hmm. to clear pathology, and and being on hormonal birth control. Mm-hmm. Um, yet. Um, the narrative, like the narrative that we always hear in the media and the narrative that a lot of people get from their doctors is this is the most studied drug. It's extremely safe. do you smoke? Are you over this body mass index? Are you under 35? It's fine. It's like, and, and this is preventative health. Like Mm -hmm. this is, this is the thing you do if you're being a good girl, if you're taking care of yourself, you know, and like, I, I'm interested in kind of breaking that down because, if you're a young woman, if you're a young person and you're sexually active, well, if you're really taking care of yourself, you should probably be using condoms. Mm -hmm. Like the pill's not protecting you from any of the sexually transmitted diseases.
0: And in fact, it may make it slightly more. And
1: you might be more susceptible to it because again, you're you're changing the cervical anatomy. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, in the sixties, this was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Of course it was because it was a different world. Like you couldn't go to your corner store and get condoms, mm-hmm. especially as a woman. Even if there were a corner store with condoms, abortion was very illegal and very dangerous.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we didn't we didn't have the the quick and easy manual vacuum aspirator or the menstrual extraction going on. It was very it was very illegal and very dangerous. Um, and you couldn't go to your doctor and get a diaphragm. You had to have a ring on your finger. Mm-hmm. So it was a totally different world. And all of a sudden, women had this discreet way to prevent pregnancy, frankly, in their relationships that were that in which there was a huge power imbalance. Mm-hmm. Like that's let's be honest. They didn't have the power at, in most cases, right, to negotiate when sex was happening, how it was happening. And so it was really protection from like a still not feminist world and right. not fe- and unfeminist relationships. So fast forward to today, well we a know a lot more about the pill and what it's doing to bodies and that I think that should, you know, factor in. And we can go to the corner store and get condoms and supposedly we have more egalitarian relationships. Supposedly we have more power in our relationships mm-hmm. that we can, you know, advocate for a condom or or Uh, So one of the fascinating things to me that I write about in the book is the way that the science on the pill ran parallel to scientific investigation of the ovulatory cycle and the cervical fluid and the relationship between those two things. And out of that, we get this method of birth control Mm -hmm. of controlling one's fertility, which is basically paying attention to the signs of fertility. The fact that you get cervical mucus, quote unquote, um, everyone hates that word, but this, you know, stretchy wonder fluid, cervical fluid, around the time of ovulation, and your body temperature changes, mm-hmm. and so there, there, and the, and the, this is a method. This is called fertility awareness based methods, FABMS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the literature, it's been studied. Now, it it can actually be as effective as the pill or, or higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are ways to control fertility that are separate from needing a continuous dose of, of hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a few other people who tried to insert this conversation <laughs> into the public discourse. Um, Ashley Eldridge was one who wrote in our control in, um, I think around 2009 or 10. And then Holly Griggs wrote a very controversial book called sweetening the pill, which is being uh, made, or or there's a documentary in progress that's, that's based off of that book. And those two, they were accused of being anti-abortion and anti-sex. And the way that they were treated really, I think, went beyond valid criticism, Mm -hmm. because maybe there was, you know, I think, uh, I read Holly Ball's book, and, you know, I felt like there were some inaccuracies and um some inflammatory, you know, like people talk about the pill being rated as a carcinogen. That's not really true. Like, you know, but we can talk about the actual data that exists. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty there. Like, we don't need to make um extreme, you know, like connections. You don't you don't need to do that. You can just talk about what we know about how the pill impacts the body. So yeah, there were valid criticisms that I shared, but but the way that they were attacked and as, just assumed to be anti-choice. Like they were, and and they were, and even if they weren't, they were, they were kind of like blamed. They were like, this is going to give ammunition to the people who want to take our rights away. Um, And how dare you? It was like, like they wanted to ban birth control, which is not what they were saying at all. What they were saying was, we should be talking about this because we have more information now. And mm-hmm. let's look at the fact that we have a different world. And like, do we really need to put the pill on this pedestal? And is it really true that, you know, I couldn't have got my college degree if I hadn't been on the pill? Is mm-hmm. that really true? Um, and so wh- when, like when you break it down, what you notice is that, you know, wh- why are, why is it that, um, being on hormonal birth control is this thing that we have to do to be, like responsible and taking care of ourselves and- Or liberated. And, and, and liberated. Mm-hmm. Is it about like controlling our own fertility or is it about preventing unwanted pregnancy? Mm-hmm. And, the, and who is it unwanted by? So I get asked when I go to my GP, you know, what are you doing for birth control? Like I have to be doing something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I just say I use condoms. And so who are like what when she asked me, what are you doing for birth control? Is that for me or is that for this culture that we're in that doesn't like unwanted pregnancy because we don't like abortion Mm -hmm. because we don't we don't like women's sexuality, really. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like you can't you can't like mess it up. Yeah. If you're going to be sexually active, don't go and have that that thing happen. Because yeah, abortion's legal, but we want them to be safe, legal, and rare.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you're not supposed to do that. That's not a form, that's often like a talking point. Well, it's not a form of birth control. And, you know, progressive OBGYNs and other providers have said to me, actually, you know, probably what's safer is condoms, withdrawal, a non-hormonal IUD, and like the occasional abortion or plan B if you need it. Yep. Because the daily dose of the hormones is having all these impacts. And like I, you know. I was on the pill for seven years. I honestly didn't really have any major side effects from it. I don't. Which doesn't mean there aren't. Which doesn't mean that (laughs) there aren't. I don't know how, you know, I I do know based on what I've read, like, well, it did have impacts at the time, but like, I didn't gain a ton of weight. I wasn't depressed. I still had orgasms. Like, it didn't affect me in a big way. So I don't have like a personal mm-hmm. bias against it. Mm-hmm. And I, of course I don't want it to be banned. And yep. of course I want everything to be covered. Like but we can still have this conversation, can't we? Like I feel like we kind of infantilize ourselves if we are like, "Oh, we can't talk about the downsides because it might give ammunition." Like that's 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 worked. Right? <laughs> and
0: then there's and then there's this fallacy which is that Okay, if doctors are pushing this so hard, they have to believe that it's safe or that it's worth the risk, right? And then um, as you outline in the book, A lot of young women are getting prescribed birth control who aren't sexually active, who, who may not be interested in having sex with men who are not, you know, some of them are getting prescribed um, hormonal birth control for acne, um, for just to, for, for period pain to quote unquote regulate the cycle to regulate the cycle which it doesn't do it erases the cycle oh. and then puts a new cycle over it or stops the cycle and more and more younger and younger women are being sort of pushed these these larks these uh yes. long-acting reversible contraceptives, contraceptives. Yeah. so those are the th- implants hormonal iud's um and yeah. you know you gotta think to yourself like why. A lot of women are being
1: prescribed the pill for bad periods, right? And to quote unquote regulate the cycle. And what's happening there is that they're being treated it, with this not sophisticated treatment for something that's that's happening, but they're not. They're, we're not treating what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, what's happening is endometriosis mm-hmm. or PCOS, um, and those disease processes have. Uh, they're they're being understood now as more systemic Mm -hmm. pathologies. Endometriosis is like pretty much under the banner of autoimmune now. And it has associations with cardiovascular issues, possibly cancer. And it's, and it's an, it's causing um, an autoimmune issue that rejects pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So what, what researchers have told me is that, you know, You may take away some of the symptoms with the pill, but that disease is still an ongoing process and we're not treating it. So when that person goes off the pill in 15 years and wants to get pregnant, well, they have endometriosis. That's a that's a disease that's highly associated with infertility. Mm -hmm. Now they're going to try to get pregnant and it's not going to work. Right. And so, like, there's, wh- there is an association with people having trouble getting pregnant, but I think the, what they haven't been able to separate is, like, how much of that is just the disease that they always had that the pill was covering up, basically, yep. that wasn't treated. And that, like, here's the sad part that makes you angry, right, is that we don't really have good treatments for these
0: things. Mm-hmm. And we're just, we, we, they've been understudied. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and to label something as safe... When it has been studied, but and maybe there haven't been enough, uh, you know, gold standard studies, double blind, large enough sample size to say there is a definitive relationship between birth control and fertility. We don't have that, but... But it is not my understanding that doctors are saying when they're handing out birth control pills or hormonal IUDs, we might be covering up symptoms of endometriosis and you might decide that you want that because you don't want to go uh, try these other possible treatments. You may decide that you want to take birth control pills to suppress the symptoms but but you should know it's you're you're gonna go 15 years right. with endoma- endometriosis, right. and there may be other things down the down the road. Instead, they are saying, and I'm I'm not saying they're intentionally lying, but they are instead saying this will help you regulate your mood, you regulate your cycle, because you won't have PMS, because you won't have PMS. I think you know, like
1: we have a misconception a little bit about like science being objective and Mm -hmm. objective truth and forgetting that science is the the first step in in the scientific process, right, is having a question. (laughs) And like, what question are you asking? There are values in that. And so like with the pill, one of the questions that was asked the least is, what impact is this going to have on a woman's sexual response, Mm -hmm. on the female sexual response? There's very little very few researchers were able to ask that question and get funding to do that study oh. and you know there is some evidence that it affects lubrication negatively, that it affects orgasm negatively um, there's also evidence that psychologically there's a benefit because if you're not worried about getting pregnant, that can be a you know mm-hmm. a positive for your for your libido right but there's real evidence that it has an impact and the fascinating thing about the the dream of the male pill (laughs) is that the reason we don't have a male pill is because they did ask that question that that was their most important question when they went to study a male pill. And one of the, um, researchers I talked to, uh, Cynthia Graham told me about a study in which the men were asked 20 different questions about how this new product, you know, this untested, um, experimental pill that they were in a clinical trial for, how it was affecting their sexual response. Twenty questions. Mm-hmm. So and she said there's never been a study like that about women in the pill. So like when we talk about, oh, this is the most studied drug, it's been studied, but it's the 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 main point of all the study is to establish that it's effective. <laughs> and that's right. that's like where our focus has been lately is on effectiveness. Effectiveness in preventing Pregnancy, right, and so what's intriguing to me, as you brought up, is that the push in the last ten years and especially the last five years has been to get women on more and more effective birth control and pushing the the larks mm-hmm. because the the less human error is involved, the more effectiveness it has um, and so we've been obsessed with effectiveness, and what that doesn't recognize as a person's values. And so the question to me, when I go to the doctor, when, you know, it's like, what are you doing for birth control? Um, if it respected my values, you know, it would be like, how do you, you know, the next question would be, okay, you know, like, what are, you know, how, what are your feelings about hormonal birth control? Have you had experiences with it? Like, and maybe I would say, well, you know, my value is that I don't really want to I don't really want to do that. I I you know, I want to have my cycle and um and then it would be like, okay, well, like that's bit, that's fair. Mm-hmm. That's valid. Your you know, your your effectiveness might not be 99.5% and that's okay. Right. That's okay because A, it's your body and it's your values. B, you can have an abortion if you need one. You know, like that but that's not the conversation we're having. It's about like effectiveness and how many, you know, the, the, the women who, the percentage of women who are not on it is a, is like a public health problem. Right. And that framing is not feminist. No, (laughs) no, it's not feminist. And it's, and it's, um, and it does track back to the origins of medicine and, and of birth, the birth control movement, which was not a feminist movement. It was about controlling the population and who got to be born. Mm-hmm. And it was very much based on eugenics and racism. And that's, you know, you see expressions of that still today, because you can look at which populations are most likely to be taking the more, um, the, 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 the methods with the least amount of patient
0: right. control. Right. So, from, and it's from low income women of color. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and we think we've come so far from these enforced, um, non-consensual sterilizations, but, you know, if indeed, um, a woman's highest priority is to have children and they are pushing a lark that may or may not affect future fertility or future wellness, that is unethical. Um, and yet, like, in the book you talk about how difficult it's been, you know, like Planned Parenthood is not coming forward to talk about, um, whether there needs to be more research about potential harms of hormonal birth control, they are positioning themselves as, um, you know, being this incredibly empowered feminist, um, you know, organization um, for choice, choice, choice. This word has gotten us into so much difficulty. Mm -hmm. I am not (laughs) anti-choice. But this, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times... You, you know, what it what really does it mean when you, you the doctor says to you, well, you chose to have this hysterectomy. There were no other choices. Right. No, there are good ones. Right. Or when you go to Planned if Parenthood. If you can't say no, a yes isn't really a yes. Right. Yeah. And you go to Planned Parenthood and they're not giving you the information right. so that you can make an informed decision. They're treating you like someone who, you know, needs to be managed. But how did we get here where... Our feminist watchdog organizations, you know, okay, fine. The FDA is not doing a good enough job. The government is not doing a good enough job. Well, um, that's, I'm not so surprised about that. Uh, I mean, I'm very upset about it. I'm very disappointed right. in it. Right. And I know by now that just because, you know, more than 50% of people in medical school are women, that hasn't changed yes. obstetrics and gynecology OK, I get all that, you know, doesn't mean I accept it. But what I but this is the part that, you know, we're coming back to, which is how did we get to this place where our feminist organizations and feminist leaders and feminist individuals are fighting for right. the, quote unquote, right. Right. To participate in a system that other feminists feel is absolutely, you know, cuckoo beans. They end up, what ends up happening is that they
1: defend and embrace these products and procedures that mm-hmm. are not that good for us. Like, the the biggest example is that Planned Parenthood, I mean, look, they, like, it's, an orga- it's a huge organization and it has conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. And I think, like... Unfortunately, because of our political climate, we're like in survival mode with Planned right, Parenthood. Right. We're like, we need you. We need, we need the clinics. You're our heroes. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, this is a very large organization with huge conflicts of interest. And, um, you know, a few years ago, the FDA held hearings about this class of birth control pills that contain drospirenone, which is a progestin. hmm and Drosperinone has been shown to be um, have, t- I think, two to three times the risk of blood clots mm-hmm. as the other progestins. This brings us back to the the days, like it, the the rate is so high that it's almost comparable to before the second generation pills. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, there were so there were these hearings, and the question was, like, should this should this class of pills, should this drospirenone be, should the FDA ban it? Should the FDA put a restriction on it because we have all these other brands, we have all these other classes, we have the, the, the second generation, the third generation, um, we have the mini pill, you know, like, do we need this one? We've already got all these other pills and all these other products. Like, do we need this one on the market? It has a higher risk of, of serious, a serious adverse event that could result in death. Yeah. And Planned Parenthood testified, we need, to, we need it to stay on the market because we, we need the option, and the interesting thing is if you look at like how risk is determined by the FDA they're comparing the risk of a birth control to the risk of a full term pregnancy. Huh. But I mean it's it's a false right. It's a false comparison because the the result of not taking birth control is not a full term pregnancy. Right. Right. Sometimes that's the result, but actually most of the time that's not the result. Sometimes there's an unwanted pregnancy, a lot of times that's going to be terminated mm-hmm. early way before the risks that they're that they're comparing to. So it's like this this weird comparison that still, still goes on any time a new product is brought before the FDA, when they're looking at the risks and benefits, they're looking at the benefits of avoiding a full-term pregnancy.
0: Right, they're not looking at also the risks of this particular pill compared to other pills. Another pill, right. They're not looking at the risk of this pill compared to non-hormonal methods of birth control right. or no birth control. I think that the thinking is, you know, well you'll be on the pill for 15
1: years. If you can't get pregnant, well, we have IVF. Mm-hmm.
2: Right.
1: We have all the medical technological solutions to all these problems. So, right. you know, well, you'll have IVF. And now, like, oh, you're, you're worried about your fertility? We'll freeze your eggs. Right. And then you'll take care of that as if that takes care of it, you know, and as if, as if IVF is a sure thing, number one, which it's not, and as if it's not a traumatic Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think most of the time it's traumatic. It's a traumatic experience for people. It's costly. It's a heavy lift for relationships. It's more, you know, it's associated with with um problems with the baby, like with the pregnancy, with the birth. It's, it's I mean, but we're okay with that. We're right. we're just okay with that as a um, as a solution. And also like as a, um, you know, I just, I think that one of the reasons that I framed the book this way is that because we, we have not reconciled our biology mm. and our culture. Like, our, we have a window of fertility. That's just the fact of the matter. <laughs> and you can try to stretch it, and you can try to push it with medical technology at a cost. Yeah. At lots of, you know, cost meaning different things. But, like, at the end of the day, we have not reconciled this. And we're turning, you know, rather than, rather than the uppity movement that would need to happen to really finish the work of, or or continue the work of feminism, we're, we're turning to these technological solutions, Um, you know, and, and I've seen the, the, I've seen egg freezing referred to in the media as like, this could be our new pill. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Like, again, this stuff is going to solve our, we're going to get equality from this medical technology. Right.
0: You know, we still have a birth crisis, mm-hmm. um, but my sense is that Pushed uh, was enormously successful in having, you know, real discernible impact. That's my, you know, again, I, I might be in in the bubble, you know, clearly I am, I guess, you know, I'm not trying to like, you know, go for some sort of optimism here because I'm very comfortable staying in my anger. (laughs) Um, But I am thinking about, okay, well, what, you know, what could happen with the publication of this book? Um, You know, my feeling reading it, and this is why, you know, my oldest son has promised me that he will read this book. Is he interested in medicine, or he like- is not at all interested okay. in medicine? He and and he's extremely interested in um, social justice, mm. environmental justice. Um, he's a prison abolitionist. He's mm. an activist. Um, he's a feminist. Um, he's and he's very critical of institutions including medicine or skeptical, I yeah. should say, that's yeah. really the important difference. Yeah, And I think that, you know, I, we've talked so much about the way in which, you know, I mean, he, he was there when his, my two older sons were there when when Judah was born mm, at home. They yeah. saw that. You know, they had that experience. And so many people were like, oh, it's traumatizing, you know, to have your kids, especially your sons, you know, witness you giving birth. You know what? It was not traumatizing. They had an experience of watching their mother, uh, you know, have this s- supported, um, safe um, You know, I mean, like, I'm almost embarrassed to use the word empowered. You sang your baby I did. (laughs) And we did that, you know, I mean, it was happening in my body, but they were there and my husband was there and my doula and my midwife were there and they saw him came into the world. I mean, I even remember um, we took him for the first time to the pediatrician because, you know, since he was born at home, the midwife came you know, many times to weigh him, to check on me, to check on the baby afterwards. But unlike in the hospital, the pediatrician di- didn't. You know, he wasn't visited and if, by the and pediatrician. You have to
1: be a good girl and go to the doctor. Correct. And so we, show up with the baby
0: with yeah, three weeks or that's right. Call CPS. That's yeah. exactly right. And and so we took the baby. Um, to the pediatrician within the first week. And I have a very nice, very open-minded pediatrician who had never seen a baby who looked like Judah because Judah got his cord blood, because Judah wasn't messed with, and he was nine pounds, not a problem. And so the doctor was concerned. He was like, I don't like Judah had such a different color. Than he was used to seeing and he gave him the heel prick and, and, um, you know, Judah was crying and, and Moses and Abram, my older sons were who, who I took with us to, uh, with me to, um, the pediatrician were like very concerned. And the doctor said, was it very scary to you when you, when you watched your mom, give birth to Judah. And both of my kids immediately said, we've never seen our brother cry like this. This is the first time we've ever seen him cry. We're concerned because what, whatever you just did to him seems <laughs> like maybe not okay. I mean, you know, it's just, it's the same thing over and over again. You know, so, okay. So anyway, this is why my son has agreed, you know, to read this book, you know, because I said to him, this is the most important thing that I've read in a really long time. It's not just about women's bodies, but it is about women's bodies. To, to not care about it is to say you don't care about women's bodies, but it's also about how can we fix the healthcare system for everyone. And I do think that there's also something that feels... Deeply important to me, not just that healthcare needs a feminist revolution, but that feminism needs a revolution as well. That can um, be thought of as a, a health revision, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we we yeah. know this from midwifery care. Yeah. You know, we know this from thinking about you know certain kinds of um, alternative or non medical um, systems of of care and you know you you talk at the end of the book about the importance of recognizing the ideologies that underlie some of these practices and You know, I immersed myself in that study when I became a doula and when I was studying to be a childbirth educator. So thinking about things like, you know, why we wear hospital gowns, you know, when we go into the hospital, why women are routinely told not to eat and drink, even though that has been shown, you know, not to be um, best practice, why the... We continue to have the electronic fetal monitor whether, when that has finally, you know, been shown, you know, even the American College of Gynecologists have said yep. that this is not good practice. Yep. You know, the thing in the book, I mean, I think this is a good example to give, is that there is no medical evidence that routine vaginal exams, um, which I... And then we're talking about just pelvic exams outside just, of labor, just yeah, like just, pelvic just your exam- yearly, annual pelvic that yeah. you're supposed to get. Yeah. That is not only is that not uh, medically necessary, um, but there is evidence that it does more harm than good. And yet we keep this right. So if we we're keeping it despite evidence, despite scientific research, even once there is enough scientific research, which already there's a problem right there. Yeah. Why? So then we have to think about, like, what are the values that the culture, um, you know, is, is uh, enforcing yeah. through these practices? Medicine is really good at doing many
1: things. Um, but there's a whole other realm of health that is not really there's there's not been attention paid by medicine with a capital M. And there's not much knowledge about it. There hasn't been much study of it. There isn't much knowledge of it. And I think people make the mistake of assuming that when you go into that system, you're going to learn everything there is to know, right? You're going to be told everything that that's known and everything that there is to know. And, you know, anything else is alt-med, quackery, pseudoscience, and what people may not know is that those are the words and terms that have been used by the medical establishment for decades, going back a century and a half, two centuries to eliminate other healing modalities. Mm -hmm. It's not like we just invented, you know, complementary medicine or like there were different kinds of healers and there was, there were midwives Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, um, and yes, you know, we didn't have, the scientific apparatus that we do now—we didn't have surgery, we didn't have a lot of things. But you know, like there's this lovely concept in engineering that I think we really could could use to think about this in a more uh, helpful and effective way, which is appropriate technology. Mm. So, like the idea that um, you know, problem solution. The problem is that families in living in villages in the highlands of Guatemala you know, have a stove in their, in their house. It brings smoke into the house. It causes respiratory problems. It's not healthy. Right. So the solution isn't to get like a stainless steel deluxe Kenmore stove or whatever, (laughs) not a homeowner. So like, that's not the solution, right? Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. The electricity isn't there. or doesn't work all the time. Or like, no, we're going to figure out, well, well, what, like, well, they're, the cooking is an important part of, of life and the cooking needs to happen inside for X, Y, and Z reason. And how can we get the smoke to go outside? That's mm-hmm. really that, you know, like that's appropriate technology. And that and so there's this like movement in engineering to go and solve problems that way. Mm-hmm. And why are, aren't we thinking about it that way in, in medicine? I think that the forward-thinking physicians are thinking about it that way. Mm-hmm. And they're realizing, or they've always known, like... I'm part of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. but I'm not, I'm not the whole solution. Like I, I, I have an expertise and, but there's, there's a whole realm of like the way food can impact a body. I mean, there's science backing that up. Now people can treat their diabetes. Like there's diabetes reversing happening with, with food. Um, I've talked to many people with IBS and Crohn's disease and, all sort of colitis and they're managing their symptoms without drugs and mm-hmm. with food, with food choices like that. I think I've seen this discounted recently in my right. adventures on Twitter. Yes. And it's kind of mind boggling to me like that. This is controversial. Like in this day and age where we're saying that food has no bearing on health or, or like treating disease. I mean, that's in the literature now. Yeah. So, you know, I think that the hope I have moving forward is that in reality, because, and because of social media, I think, because of the internet, and because millennials have this tendency to be sharers, yes. and they're willing to talk about... You mean, I think like the fact that we're willing to talk about your hysterectomy and what has happened to your vagina is like, well, thank you, millennials, because like you're talking about all sorts of things (laughs) all the time. And like, well, you've kind of given us license to be like, well, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I put my own abortion in my new book because I was like, okay, like this is relevant. You know, I'm going to talk about this. And so I do think that. The, the, the hierarchical authoritative knowledge that physicians have held for, for, you know, over a century, I think is being challenged right now. And it's hard to gauge from the media and Twitter (laughs) how effective that challenge is. Mm -hmm. But I, I do see a lot of people turning and, and they may not be giving the feedback to the doctors. Like they might, they're they're getting glimpses of it, but people are, are finding solutions to their health problems or at least someone, at least a provider who's willing to listen and willing to be on a journey with them as they try various things. Because a lot of this is trial and error. Like, right. I mean, pelvic pain is all, the, all, in fact, a lot of the chronic pain diseases, there are no established standards of care that you know, are effective. It's like they try various things. And so, you know, people are on their journeys. And I think the evolved physicians are the ones who are like, yeah, okay, try that. Right. Vaginal steaming helps you. Like, okay. You know, that's great. Why would I be threatened by that? Right? You know? Um, And I do think that like the kind of reactionary dinosaur r- response is like, that's pseudoscience, that's quackery, don't do that. Because that really echoes the same thing that the early physicians who had hardly any knowledge of of birth, Mm -hmm. really. They really, I mean, the midwives had way more accumulated knowledge and expertise about how babies come out of vaginas (laughs) than the early doctors. The, the marginalized populations that have been traditionally dismissed, most dismissed by medicine and most abused by medicine, are the ones who are turning to these other methods. You know, they're, they're, ga- they're doing the thing that the women did in the 70s. They're gathering in circles. They're sharing information. They're, maybe that, that gathering is happening virtually online and they're hearing about, you know, a practice like vaginal steaming or, you know, whatever it is. Um, And a lot of it is not studied. A lot of it is not, you know, based on science in that way. It's also not, there's not science there to refute it. And a lot of it is like low risk. Like when we're talking about something that medicine has not found a good, a good treatment for like a chronic pain issue or Mm -hmm. pelvic pain related to sexual trauma, like there are no good standard conventional therapies that work for everyone. So women are trying different things. We're talking about low-risk things. So I think that people are turning to these other, these other providers. They're turning to health coaches. They're turning to acupuncture. They're turning to all these other things. And, you know, a lot of those things have actually been borne out in the data now. Like acupuncture is embraced by World-renowned cancer centers, because mm-hmm. there's actually an evidence base for it in
0: treating pain and depression, and um, and you know, but but that was quackery, right? Twenty years ago. And the, and the other thing that you mentioned so clearly in the book is. Uh, So, one of the problems with pathologizing, vilifying, uh, fear mongering around alternative treatments that may be effective, but we don't have enough medical research to, uh, we don't have enough scientific research to say they work. We also don't have enough scientific research to say they don't or that they're harmful. So, one of the problems is that then um, people are ashamed of seeking these alternative treatments. Um, The doctors are put on, you know, the doctors become absolutely in control this is all mixed up in capitalism and marketing. Um, But then the other thing which you mentioned in the book is that there is an epidemic of harm. There is an epidemic of harm of racism. We have evidence for this. And yet that we do nothing about. And we're not addressing that we're not addressing, as you said before, you know, the systemic institutional reasons that it's Difficult to have a child in your twenties or in your thirties. Um, you know, maybe if we had guaranteed health care, if mm-hmm. we had universal daycare, if we, you know, could change um, gender discrimination in yeah. the workplace, we could begin to, you know, or I, I mean, so you know, or stress if we if everybody and I'm not saying it's not worth fighting about you know acupuncture because that fight was worth fighting about because it really is a treatment that has helped many many people right. we've known that for a long time and now there's now the doctors are not shaming about it and now you can get coverage for it and now yeah. you can get well some people can some but people. yes yeah. yes and i mean
1: i think what i hopefully you know exposed in my work is that so much of this is about control mm-hmm. and control of the market and authority one thing that, you know, we need to happen if we're gonna have a feminist revolution in healthcare is that we need midwives. Yeah. I mean, we need doctors to provide the midwifery model. But we also need some we need some OBs to be there to do C sections yep. and to do the high risk pregnancies and to be there when there's pathology. We need that. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what we need are midwives. We need frontline providers who whose training is in the physiological process and who are going to support it. I mean people don't realize that is not that is not the training of the OBGYN to to support the physiology. That's just that's just not right. what they know. Right. And I think we have a real hard time wrapping our heads around the fact that midwives have that expertise, that they are experts in what that normal birth process looks like and how to achieve it with the minimum injury to those very sensitive parts that I think we you know, if we're, if we can enjoy our bodies, we want to keep enjoying them. Right. Mm So we need that revolution. And we, as people need the freedom to seek care from different providers, not just MDs. And that is going to be a huge, I mean, that is not how our system is built. And, we, and it really threatens, it threatens the profession. Yes. It threatens people's livelihoods. Yes. And it threatens our, it threatens our paradigm I and mean, threatens our, the things we thought we knew to be true. <laughs> and that's why I think people end up having arguments with their husbands late at night <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because we're dealing with like, I mean, we've been living in a, in a medical paradigm for 150 years. And I think that Like it's inevitable that it's going to change at some point, but it's really entrenched. And there's a lot of there's a lot of corporate interest in it. Yes. And this is not to say that individual people, physicians are lying or basing their decisions on finances. That's not this is not to say that at all. But I think my point is that there is a system that they've gone into and they may be the most feminist women, you know, but they went into a system that has not overcome its patriarchal and paternalistic origins. And that, you know, like when we talk about it being like uh, having origins in slavery, I mean, the early surgeons perfected procedures on enslaved women. That is baked into medicine. Like we have to recognize that. The idea of doing pelvic exams on unconscious patients is baked into OBGYN. They have had to overcome that, and it uh, doesn't always work. I mean... There, are, there was an article written last year about how this still goes on in teaching hospitals, yep. that women who go on, you know, are under anesthesia for some surgery, maybe it's pelvic related, maybe it's not. They're subjected to pelvic exams for training purposes, you know. So like this idea of authority and ownership over bodies is unfortunately baked into medicine with a capital M. And that doesn't mean that providers individually act that way. It doesn't mean that, they're, that providers have like evolved and follow the, their own organizational ethics guidelines. I mean, ACOG's ethics guidelines are very clear right. that a patient has autonomy over their body, and you can't violate that. But it's violated all the time. Yep. And it's violated as a matter of policy. I mean, in a lot of hospitals, the policy states that Breech babies do not come out vaginally in this hospital, mm-hmm. and that means that that woman is being forced to have surgery, and that's something we don't do with any other adult patient. But somehow it's it's routine, it's part of policy, it's part of OBG1 training that you don't learn how to deliver, to catch, to attend a woman having a breech, a vaginal breech birth. It's just it's been accepted, and I, I think like so that those are like the inherent problems we're dealing with is like. For some reason, we do not respect women's autonomy in the medical realm. I mean, the medical system is screwing everybody over. Yep. <laughs> but I do think that, that women are being treated differently. Mm-hmm. When, and we see, it, we see it in the a maternity care context most starkly, that we don't own our bodies mm-hmm. when we're pregnant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that's. I, I've just had this conversation with Lynn Paltrow, the yep. attorney who started National Advocates for Pregnant Women. And I mean, she argues that, no, they're in violation of of human rights law. They're in violation of the constitution. And also like judges tend to side with hospitals that currently in New York, the courts are siding with the Staten Island hospital that forced Renat Dre to have a C-section. They did not get consent from her. She did not sign a consent form and they cut her open. Wow. And the courts are siding with the hospital that, you know, you can, if you feel like the baby's in danger, you can override a maternal refusal. And that's against ACOG guidelines. Mm-hmm. That's against our notions of autonomy and bodily integrity. Mm-hmm. That you that you are in charge of who enters your body and mm-hmm. what happens to your body. It's something that we see violated all the time for women. So like these are the really like these are the deep problems that we're dealing with autonomy and authority. And I think unfortunately, we have not had the feminist revolution where we say, like, you know, my body, my choice applies to medical care, like my body, my choice has only been applied in the context of I want that procedure. Right. But what about when you don't want the procedure or you want something else? I want a midwife. Mm -hmm. I want a home birth. And I want to be able to transport to a hospital that's not going to be
0: hostile toward me. I want like full Uh, information. I want full information, right. I want real consent as opposed to basically malpractice oriented consent. Right. And I want you to value
1: my organs enough to study them and come up with some alternatives and don't, and not just tell me that this organ has one purpose. And because I'm over 40 or over 45, Oh, no big deal. Right. Right. So I think that's, that's the revolution we need in feminism, which is I have a right to my bodily integrity
0: and right. my physiology. It's state sanctioned gender based violence. Yeah. And racialized violence. Yeah. So and that's a that's a that should really scare everybody. The problem is that this is an erosion of of rights, which then happens to bodies and human beings outside of the hospital, outside of the medical care profession. And, and it has this this precedence and this basis, which is, which is really dangerous.
1: Yeah. Like I I've heard your story so many times mm-hmm. and it's like it doesn't get any
0: less heartbreaking or infuriating. I mean, can you believe it? I'm I'm a certified doula. I managed to have three vaginal births. I had a home birth. I'm, I'm really well educated on this topic. And I still ended up with a hysterectomy at 47. And I think
1: that what we're missing is, so we have, we have an alternative when we're pregnant. If we find midwifery, mm-hmm. right, we can go into that world and have a completely different kind of care. I mean it doesn't always work out, right? But right. but we can we can find a midwife all of a sudden everything's so different. But with everything else, it's not like there's just another alternative universe that you can just find. Right. It's totally ad hoc. It's like, you know, you might find the right nutritionist who get, you know, sees your hormone, sees what's happening, thinks that they can fix it and it something works and you stop bleeding and it and it and it works. Maybe but it's like again we don't have we don't have the treatments. We don't have so it's like it's trial and error and it's like a ton of burden. It's a huge burden on the part of the person. You know, thankfully in the last 40 50 years midwifery came up and you know provided women with this other alternative. And yet we still very few of us actually find it and find it find our way out of the out of the institutional birth model. Um, But it's there. Mm-hmm. It's you can find it. But like with everything else, I think it's so much harder and it's so much more trial and error. And you're bleeding. Yeah, and, and it's you too late. can't stop it. And you were actually thinking of you were actually thinking you were going to die. Yeah. I mean, so it was like, what other choice? You didn't. You there were no other options. And this is what's like. This is what's heartbreaking. And this right. is where things need to change because. I don't know what's happening in Europe, but half half as many women need hysterectomies. Mm-hmm. Um, so like why are we having so many fibroids to begin with? Why are we having so much bleeding? Why are we not able to to stop it? Mm-hmm. Why are we not being offered myomectomies? I mean, that's a whole other conversation we didn't have about right. surgical training yep. and the fact that OBGYNs don't get as much as other surgeons. Yep. Which I go into in in detail. I mean, that was one shocking thing to me that the OBGYN residency is four years. They get very few months training doing actual surgery. Most of what they end up doing is C-section, which Mm -hmm. is the first C-section is a pretty simple surgery. So we don't actually we're not actually going to skilled, highly skilled surgeons when we go to our average OBGYN, which I think is an important piece of information
0: that women need to know. And and I'll add one piece to that, which I wasn't going to even mention But I think this is such a good example of how this system functions with, you know, uh, not nefarious, but unintentional harm, which is several women who had had hysterectomies advised me so strongly, you have to go to a cancer surgeon. You have to go get your if you if you know, I didn't have cancer. Um, only ten percent um, of of hysterectomies are because of cancer. Cancer is a something that is generally agreed upon, requires a hysterectomy. Right. But they said that that you don't you don't want a surgeon doing this hysterectomy f- for you who's not a cancer specialist because they are better surgeons and they have more training. So okay, I'm glad I was told that, but that's how I ended up deciding to let the doctor take my cervix out because if you go to a cancer specialist they are going to push you very hard to take out your cervix because they see cervical cancer i asked over and over again what is my risk of getting cervical cancer and he said very very low very low but why not and he kept describing it's right. one organ so it's less traumatic to to section it. Well they they probably did a
1: vaginal hysterectomy also, right?
0: They did a laparoscopic vaginal yeah. hysterectomy. They can't do that if they don't take your cervix. That's and right. And he said yeah. he threatened me. This was just like a C-section. He sort of he sort of kindly paternalistically threatened me he said look I can do it the other way but there's more blood loss and someone in your situation who's lost so much blood you might not be able to afford the blood loss you're going to end up with a transfusion which I needed anyway you know this guy wants to to save women's lives and he is he sees cervical cancer and uterine cancer all the time, all day long. So his bias is why not take out the cervix? Right. And I, there was no way at that point for me to make a decision without trusting him. Because if I'm trusting him to do the surgery, right. at some point I need to trust him to, to, to guide me in this decision. Looking right. back on it, I wouldn't have made that choice. Oh right. my God, we have we have yeah. to stop here, Jennifer. Stop. How do we stop? I don't know. We just <laughs> we just stop. How do you do? You read a poem usually? <laughs> yeah, usually I do. All right, read Jennifer's book. There, it is an absolutely incredible. Thank you, Rachel. You've been listening to episode ninety-four of Commonplace with Jennifer Block. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. The Commonplace team includes me, Valentin Conady, Christine LaRusso, Langa Chenyoka, and Nancy Juan. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to Mrs. Naja's Kitchen. This organization was chosen by Jennifer Block. Mrs. Naja's Kitchen is providing hot meals to women and families in Gaza, sheltering in place during the most dire of circumstances. For links to the people and texts we mention in this episode, including Mrs. Naja's Kitchen, please visit commonpodcast.com. There, you will also find a link to sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode, and information about how to become a patron of the podcast. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of Everything Below the Waste Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution by Jennifer Block, courtesy of St. Martin's Press. Or Our Bodies Ourselves by the Boston Women's Health Books Collective, courtesy of Atria Books. All patrons will get access to a list of Jennifer Block's tips for nonfiction writers and her list of recommended books about medical feminism. The music you're listening to was composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin. Many thanks to St. Martin's Press, Atria Books, and all the publishers who send books to me and to our dedicated patrons. Thank you, thank you to those patrons who make Commonplace possible. And thank you to you, dear listener. I wish you safety and freedom in body and spirit. Thank you for listening.